Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. We're going to do a little two-parter on gallbladder issues over the next two weeks. This week, we're going to start with acute cholecystitis, and next week, we'll dive into acute cholangitis. So starting with acute cholecystitis, it's a pretty simple definition. It's acute inflammation of the gallbladder. There are a couple of variant forms. The kinds that you can see aside from the typical that's caused by a stone are acalculus cholecystitis, which is about 10% of cases. There's inflammation of the gallbladder in the absence of gallstones or cystic duct obstruction, and this is common in older patients and after non-biliary tract surgery. There's also the variant of emphysematous cholecystitis. This one's even more rare, about 1% of cases. Here you've got inflammation of the gallbladder along with the presence of gas in the gallbladder wall. Commonly, we see this in diabetic patients. The pathophysiology here is actually pretty straightforward. The cystic duct becomes obstructed, and that's the proximate cause of cholecystitis. The obstruction leads to gallbladder distension, and there's an inflammatory reaction that occurs either due to mucosal ischemia or from increased hydrostatic pressure or possibly from cytotoxic effects of the bile degradation itself. There are a number of causes of cystic duct obstruction, but the most common is gallstones, about 95% of the time. You can also see things like fibrosis, parasitic infections, tumors, or lymphadenopathy. Let's talk about picking this disease up. Patients are typically going to complain of right upper quadrant pain. They may have a history of similar episodes, the biliary colic that precedes the cholecystitis. Nausea and vomiting are common as well as fever, and they can have radiation to the tip of the right scapula, which is a referred pain. On physical exam, patients, again, will typically have right upper quadrant or epigastric tenderness with palpation. There's going to be a variable presence of rebound or guarding depending on how much the patient has progressed. You can also see tenderness with an inspiratory pause during palpation of the right upper quadrant during a deep breath. This is the so-called Murphy sign. And then finally, we always talk about things like having fever, but it's poorly sensitive. Only about 35% of patients will have it. And it's, of course, nonspecific. Just because they have a fever doesn't mean they have cholecystitis. Now, this variation of history and physical exam can make the diagnosis very difficult. But in general, we're looking for abdominal pain, typically in the right upper quadrant, along with nausea, vomiting, and possibly fever. There's a long differential diagnosis here as well. Again, we're going to be thinking about biliary colic. We're going to be thinking about cholidocolithiasis. We can think about things like acute hepatitis or hepatic abscesses, cholangitis, pancreatitis, pyelonephritis, and then one that seems to be a little mysterious is the right lower lobe pneumonia. I find in younger patients in particular, they can present with a pneumonia and only have that right upper quadrant pain. This has to do with that bottom edge of the right lobe of the lung irritating the diaphragm just as you can get with a hepatitis or even with a gallbladder issue. When there's quite a bit of variation on history and physical, it's nice if we can rely on our diagnostic tests. But here we're left a little short as well. Overall, laboratory tests are insensitive and nonspecific. They can neither rule in nor rule out the disease. But there are some that we commonly get, and there are some common abnormalities that we have to think about. The white blood cell count is commonly elevated, and you may see a left shift, but this can be absent in up to 40% of patients. AST and ALT may be mildly elevated, but again, that's poorly sensitive and specific. And total and direct bilirubin can be elevated, and that actually raises your suspicion for cholidocolithiasis or cholangitis, not necessarily for simple cholecystitis. How about imaging? 
We've got a couple of imaging modalities at our disposal, starting with ultrasound. There are a number of common findings here. The presence of gallstones is pretty common, and in fact, the absence has a high negative predictive value for cholecystitis. So if you see no stones, it's unlikely, but again, not impossible. In cholecystitis, you'll see a thickened gallbladder wall with a measurement greater than or equal to three millimeters. You may see pericholecystic fluid, and you're also going to be able to assess for a sonographic Murphy sign. That's when you see maximal tenderness elicited over the visualized gallbladder by the ultrasound probe when the patient takes a deep inhalation. The test characteristics for ultrasound are pretty good. The presence of an impacted gallstone, either in the neck or the cystic duct, plus a sonographic Murphy sign has a positive predictive value somewhere between 70 and 92%. The overall sensitivity is 88% and specificity 80%. So again, you can see that there are some limitations. CT scan is another common imaging modality we have at our disposal. It's got a higher accuracy than ultrasound for defining complications related to cholecystitis, so things like gangrene or emphysematous cholecystitis, but the performance characteristics for finding cholecystitis are not all that different from ultrasound. The common findings again here are a thickened gallbladder wall greater than or equal to 3 millimeters, increased attenuation of the gallbladder bile, or subserosal edema. Finally, we do have some nuclear tests like HIDA, which can be used to detect this as well. It is considered the gold standard for diagnosis with a high sensitivity and specificity. A positive study is failure of HIDA to outline the gallbladder within one hour of administration. I find that the HIDA scan is often requested or applied when we are not sure based on our ultrasound CT and the physical exam of what's going on with the patient. So often we are admitting the patients for that HIDA scan when we're just not sure. Let's move from diagnosis to management. Now that we've identified the cholecystitis, what do we need to do? We're going to start with our basic supportive care. We're going to give them some IV crystalloids to maximize their volume status. We're going to check and replete electrolytes as needed. These can be significant if they've got lots of losses from vomiting. We're going to provide antiemetics, and if we haven't done so already, we should be giving pain control. What about the role of antibiotics? It is unclear whether there's significant bacterial infection as part of the pathogenesis of cholecystitis. Obviously, if the patient exhibits signs or symptoms of sepsis, we're going to administer broad-spectrum antibiotics covering both gram-negative and gram-positive pathogens, as well as anaerobes. A typical regimen would be vancomycin and an advanced-generation penicillin, something like piperacillin tazobactam, or a third- or fourth-generation cephalosporin, something like cefepime plus metronidazole, since cefepime doesn't really cover the anaerobes. In the absence of sepsis, most surgeons would consider administration of a second- or third-generation cephalosporin. So again, this could be something like ceftriaxone. If the patient has emphysematous cholecystitis, this is likely going to be caused by invasive gas-producing pathogens like E. coli, Klebsiella, and Clostridium. Those patients should be getting an advanced-generation penicillin, something like piperacillin tazobactam, and you might want to consider adding metronidazole to that even though piptazo does cover anaerobes. All of these patients should be getting a surgical consultation for a cholecystectomy. There are a number of complications we have to be looking out for, things like gangrene leading to necrosis and perforation, the emphysematous cholecystitis we mentioned earlier, a pericholecystic abscess, or development of frank sepsis. Obviously, any patient with cholecystitis is going to be admitted to the hospital. They're going to get IV antibiotics. They're going to get the pain control we mentioned earlier. And most of these patients are going to go for a cholecystectomy during that initial hospitalization. Often, the surgeons will wait for the patient to cool off a little bit, and then they'll take them to the OR. And this improves their outcomes. 
Patients who already have significant complications like gangrene or perforation may not go for an immediate cholecystectomy, but instead for percutaneous drainage. All right, before we wrap up, let's hit some take-home points. Acute cholecystitis is an inflammation of the gallbladder and is a clinical diagnosis. Imaging can be helpful, but ultrasound and CT can both have false negatives. In addition to that, lab tests are insensitive and nonspecific, and so they can't rule in or rule out the diagnosis. Treatment is going to focus on fluid resuscitation when indicated, supportive care, antibiotics, and early surgical consultation for cholecystectomy. And finally, although uncommon, be aware that patients can develop gangrene, necrosis, perforation, as well as sepsis. These patients are going to need aggressive resuscitation as part of their management. That's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.